all those who are able, please stand with me for the reading of the word. This morning we continue in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. You can be seated. Thank you, Francesco. We thank God for bringing you and Natalie into our fellowship. What a blessing you've been. On October 29th, 2011, I stood in front of about 150 people, and I promised to be faithful and loyal to Mallory. And in so doing, uh, not only pledging my loyalty to her, but you could say there's another angle of that, is at that moment, I also said that I was not choosing all the others. The point of that example, and I know many in the room are married, is that in the key decisions of life, much like a marriage, that there's a point in time that will lead to what I will call here an inevitable conflict of loyalty. To say yes to one in that manner is by definition saying no to all the others. To put it a bit differently, it's an old saying, say if you try to chase two rabbits at once, both get away. That there are things in life, decisions that come, that will force us to make choices and to choose loyalties. Now today's passage, in fact, all of Luke 12, is a challenging teaching. Say we don't want to be shy about that. It is a challenge to us. But what Jesus is showing us is this, that the claims that he makes, what God has done in Jesus, are of such cosmic significance, and they command so much of our lives that as we choose what to do with the Jesus question, we'll lead in our lives, actually time and time again, to a choice about loyalties. And so in that vein, let's have a look at our passage. You remember what's happening, that Luke, we're in the middle of Luke's gospel, it is a Greco-Roman biography. Uh, So this is eyewitness testimony of those who uh, knew Jesus, watched him teach. And Luke, a physician, uh, sets way back in the prologue what he's doing. He said, look, I've taken uh, careful measure. 
to take a, a, an account of all that I could, of what Jesus said and did, that is of crucial importance, that I've not made any of this up, and please, anyone who hears this reading, uh, make a decision on following Jesus. And so we find ourselves in this account of Jesus gathering his followers, his disciples, and he's giving them distinctives of what it means to follow him. You say, well, you see how that comes right to us. That out in the lobby, right, our great mission statement, following Christ together. That we're in the business of making disciples, of being followers of Jesus. So as he would teach the distinctives of following him, that they come right into our church family and say, you know what, these are distinctives for us as well. And so let's begin, have a look again at verse 49, say a startling introduction to today's uh, passage. Jesus preaches, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it will already be kindled. Say, what does that mean? Uh, What's Jesus talking about? Say to the listeners, you'd say fire in the Hebrew Bible, which Jesus knew well, say fire is an indication of trial and purification of uh, judgment, we might say. And so really what Jesus is saying is, I came to set all things right in the world. And I came to correct all the wrongs to make sure there's absolute justice. We might say, as continuing on from last week, that he came, he's ready to give judgment. That in Jesus, the world will be judged. You know, I'll pause here for a moment. I, I, I never understood this, but, you know, people say, well, did, did Jesus ever really claim to be God? If you've heard that objection, you say, well... <laughs> I feel like responding, well, like on every page of the New Testament, the least of which would be something like Luke 12, 49, right? Jesus saying, I came to judge the world. And I wish, he says, that I could do it right now. So a rather startling teaching. But we know, we, we deep down, we do long for things to be put right. And this is an intimidating thing that Jesus uh, will call us to give an account. But then notice the wonderful balance of that with verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So what's he talking about there? The baptism which Jesus must be baptized with is him again speaking illustratively about his suffering and crucifixion. He's saying something to the effect of, I'm going to be plunged under. I'm going to be be taken down for your sake. And so you see the balance, the wonderful balance. We read verse 49 say, I'm in trouble here because I look back at my own record and even this week to say, well, if there's a, a God up there and he's perfect, then I stand in condemnation and I know that he's judging the world in Jesus and, and it's coming. Last week, we ought to be ready and on mission. But lo and behold, Jesus came forward in history that he might suffer in our place so that all those who would believe in him, right, that his death assuages the wrath of God, the just judgment of God, that we can be tucked into him, and he endures this great distress on our behalf. So you have both sides of the great gospel equation to say, I'm, I'm a sinner in need of help, but God put forth Jesus, and all who believe in him can be right with God. Another thing on those couple of verses, you'll notice with me, you've been a Christian for any length of time, Somebody will say something like this. Well, you know, Jesus, definitely a historical figure, poor Galilean peasant, got on the wrong side of the Romans, died in a bad way, and then St. Paul and the church made up all the business about, you know, the, the, the cross being of cosmic significance. Have you heard that? You know, it's all made up by the church after the fact. If you see again the beginning of verse 49, Jesus set out deliberately 
to rescue the world. He knew what his mission was. I've come to judge the world, to put it right, to reconcile all things under the creator, and I also came to suffer and to die on behalf of sinners, and I'm not stopping, he's saying, until it's accomplished. It wasn't as if, you know, God is up there and watching this play out and the Romans get a bit nasty and he waits and say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with this or that it's made up. Say, this is the plan from the beginning that we rebelled against our good creator and God initiated a redemption plan always to be fixated on the cross of Christ. And here's what Jesus said, I came to bring judgment, but I've also come to rescue weak sinners like us. Can you see both of that? The just judgment of God, but the grace of God. All who want to follow Jesus, come, come, follow him, have faith in him, have faith in what he's doing. That's God's game plan of redemption. So you could say the passage, you know, begins, this sermon begins with a, you know, Jesus throws down the power card. Um, We're all paying attention now. Uh, There's a judgment, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to die and it will be accomplished. Flowing out of that then is this language of decision, this language of the inevitable conflict of loyalties. Because let's face it, verse 51 might get my vote, maybe yours too, as the most offensive verse to the modern mind. So there's some things that rub up, like listen again, so you're reading this correctly. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth, Jesus says? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, I bet you read some of you know, that passage to some people in Crocker Park. You know, they know about Jesus. Now, Jesus is a great guy, and he brings all the peace. You know, he's brings, why would Jesus say he brings division? How do we square this line with all the great passages where Jesus is, in fact, the Prince of Peace? Even Luke's Gospel, you go back to chapter 2, right? He's, he's the one who's going to usher in real peace. How do we square these two? What does Jesus mean that he's going to bring division while also being the Prince of Peace? I, I think the best way to see that, that this is something like this. For those of us who have surrendered to Jesus, that we've recognized what he's done, that he saved us and rescued us, I pray that he really is the Prince of Peace in our lives. I pray if you're a Christian today, you look out at all the cultural clutter, all that's going on in the world, all that can toss us to and fro and get us a bit anxious, and then you come back to say, wait a second, I'm one of those who rests in Jesus that he's taken care of it. He's taken care of my sin and my pride, that he set me right, and my relationship with him and the mission he's given me actually can never be thwarted by anything material or anything that this world brings. So for those of us who have surrendered to God on his terms and come to Jesus, that Jesus really is the Prince of Peace, and we know that he's gonna come back and set peace in all the cosmos, right? That he's gonna make all things new. I'd add to that, verse 51 Who's the source? What's the real problem? Uh, What's the real cause, we could say, of the division? Some would say, well, Jesus is the one. He's saying he's not coming to bring bring peace. He's the one who's going to cause division. I would say that the, the problem here is not Jesus, that he's the solution, that the gospel's the good news and the cure. The, the problem with the division is the stubborn heart uh, of a human being. That it's the corruption of my own heart that's the creation of division. In other words, as long as there are those who do not believe in Jesus and do not uh, surrender to God on his terms, you say as long as we could say there are Christians and non-Christians, then there's never going to be peace on earth. 
But the problem, the, the cause of the division is not the good news of the gospel in Jesus. The cause of the division is my rebellion. And this, friends, deep down we know is true. We come into the world not saying, you know what, I think it's a really good idea to surrender to God and to come to Jesus and admit that I'm a sinner and that I'm weak and that I need help. That's not the default mode. The default mode is I come into the world and I say, I'm going to do what I want. And I do what feels good. And the last thing I need is that old Jesus. And that's how we come in until God rescues us. And we experience the great peace that he offers in Jesus. So for the faithful, Jesus is a source of peace and unity. But for those who say, I'm doing life on my own terms, that that will ultimately lead right to, to this division of loyalties. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to say that there's uh, something really at stake in following him. Now, what about the division of families? What's he trying to establish here? And I'm afraid we don't have time to talk about relationships between mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law. That's above my pay grade, so that's a complicated one. Um, but I think the point, you say, if there's one truth here, Jesus is showing that there's a, an order of how we should love people and things. Um, that there's a lot of stuff in the world, there's a lot of people in the world, uh, but there ought to be an, an ordering of those loves. This is made famous by, by St. Augustine, probably on a passage like this. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you realize what is at stake in Jesus, that that cannot be cast outside to the periphery and, and a secondary matter, but rather that must be where one's primary allegiance is. That if this is true, that I am a sinner in need of the grace of God and God's redemptive plan is putting Jesus forth in the world, that he is Savior and Lord and my King, that I'm to live for him, then that's not on the same level as anything else we got going on. And Jesus is saying, remember, it's loving God first. And when we love God first, all those other relationships begin to fall in line. It's a bit like, you know, buttons on your dress shirt. You say, if you get the top one wrong, all the subsequent buttons are going to be off. So he's saying here, you, you love God. And when that's your primary allegiance, all your other relationships, the most intimate relationships, will feed off of that. Only when we're rightly ordered with God can our other relationships be healthy. And I know what some of you are saying. Say, I know a lot of non-Christians, they seem to have good relationships. Uh, maybe so. I can't speak to what they're feeling. But for those of us, right, who are under the authority of God's word, who've been called according to his purposes, I think we, we recognize this to say, yes, Jesus comes first even before my beloved relationship of my family and my friends, but that those secondary relationships uh, should really flow down from the first. Now, I, I'm going to... On Sunday mornings, we're always very open. You say, we don't come here to talk about fluffy things, but real things. So I'm going to put my finger on a delicate area, if that's okay. And I know this will affect some differently than others. Let's say a young person grows up in our church. They're converted. Say, Jesus is Savior and Lord. They go off to college, have a great time. They come back. They're very happy. They've got someone in their arm. They you know, later say, well, this is, I'm very much in love. I'd like to get married. Um, but who I found is, is not a Christian. But I'm going to get him there. I'm, I'm going to continue to date. And hopefully, you know, the missionary dating thing. Pastor, what do you think? You say, you can go to a sheer prescriptivism, which I, I don't like to do. Well, the Bible says. It's a good thing to do what the Bible says and just say God says. Or you could go to a descriptivism, something like this. Well, let me get this straight. You would say that the 
first relationship in your life is to the Lord Jesus, that your overarching orientation in life, that what you're driving at, your very purpose, is to please King Jesus. Um, That's number one. Say, yeah, that's right. And you would say that when the Bible says the two shall become one flesh, you think that's a very real thing, that that union is special, the two becoming one. you believe that? Yes, I do. I said, well, help me see why this decision of being married to a non-believer isn't going to ultimately lead to an inevitable conflict of loyalties in your life. It's going to be hard. It's not just that the Bible says, but can you see you're going down a path where if everything you told me is true, which I believe when people tell me those things, absolutely they're true, I believe you. It's just we're setting ourselves up for this kind of inner tension, and we know that it's going to intersect in such a way. Either my orientation, the two becoming one flesh, has to be Christ's word, Jesus' word, or... Um, to another human relationship. That's what he's saying here. Jesus comes first. Friends, I, I know this is, this is a challenge. This is a hard thing this morning. Yesterday, I was uh, participating in a funeral in a little country church outside of Dubois, Pennsylvania. Meet an 82-year-old man, talking to him about faith, and he says, yes, I'm, I'm a Roman Catholic. Points across the parking lot to his 84-year-old brother. He says, my brother there? He said uh, 57 years ago, he left the Catholic Church to become an evangelical, got married to an evangelical girl, and he starts, the tears start coming, and he said, my mom refused to come to the wedding. And I thought right of this passage, I said, here's a man 57 years older, realizing that the faith commitments in his family had caused a conflict of loyalties. So that's a tough thing, but here's the good news is that when we recognize what Jesus is saying here, that his life and ministry, his calling is so decisive, it's so uh, all-encompassing that it's going to lead to the exclusion of some things, the good news is, is that when we come together as a church family, that there ought to be a unity like no other. That we are those who say Jesus is king, we're all rightly aligned, we're loving each other under him, and the church family becomes a strong Unit. You could say this, that Jesus excludes in order to unify under his lordship. So that's what this passage is about. Jesus being primary and all-encompassing and the deep unity that those of us who are in him can have in one another. Now, secondly, we'll take it up from verse 54. I put it this way, that Jesus' ministry and his teachings um, demand movement, is how I phrased it. They require Action. So what does he say? Notice verse 54. He turns to the crowds now. He says, you know, all of you, you're really good at reading weather patterns. But why can't you look at what's happening in the world and see that there's a much bigger thing at stake? You read that, you say, nothing's changed in 2,000 years. How many, you walk into a room, you say, well, how about the weather today? How many conversations start with a meteorological reference? But Jesus say, well, we're very comfortable talking about things that don't really matter and observing things that are coming. But what about the deep questions? And maybe it's this passage, 54 to 56. You say, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. Why don't you interpret the times? It's an invitation to the faithful to be what I would call cultural exigents. They were not to be those, you know, kind of cloistered off in the back room, you know, the, the medieval monastics, but rather those who are culturally engaged, that we're looking at the world and what's happening and we're asking questions like Karl Barth said, you prepare a sermon with the Bible in one hand and the daily paper in the other, that we're out in the world asking questions of people. So, for example, 
What do you think about these? You say, well, yeah, you could say weather, raining today. Or get to a conversation and say, why do you think crime is rising? Say, why do you think the family unit's having such trouble? What do you make of these soaring rates of anxiety and depression in such an advanced economy? Why has politics and political figures become almost like religious figures, as if political parties for some people have come become their gods? You see, I don't think any of those are particularly religious questions. But they are questions of our time. And Jesus is saying, look out at the world, my people, and ask the questions. And our great privilege, you say, how does evangelism go forth in 2022? That it is our privilege to tie the bowstring between the reality in which we find ourselves and what God has done in Jesus. So we say, here's reality. Can we all agree on what's happening? Now, may I show you how Jesus, what God has done in him, actually makes more sense of all that's happening than anything else, and a lot more sense than, hey, we're just a bunch of aimless, uh, you know, aimless cells kind of moving through uh, as much time as we have. Say, so there's a much better way, but can we be those who ask the right questions, ask them openly, and then show why in our world, Jesus makes sense and fulfills the longings of the human heart. Now, one other point on this, interpreting the times. Where do we find ourselves and how ought we to prepare as Providence Church? We all know, I think we'd agree, that there will be increasing tensions between the faith of, well, our faith and the way that the world is going. Now, here is where I want to be careful. I actually don't think we have to adopt anything new or change that much. So, for example, you heard in the missions update, children with special needs. You know, I'm to the point now, I'm out walking in the supermarket, I see a young family with a young special needs child, say, I almost presume they're a Christian. Because if we're reading what's happening in Scandinavia, say there's a great boasting, say Scandinavia has eliminated all special needs children. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, they have the ultrasound, they say, well, we don't, you know, we for Christians, that's not an option that all life is sacred. So you can see we've not changed the historic, we've not been deliberately provocative, we've just done what we've always done. Now, say I happen to think mother is a very good word. Uh, I prefer mother and probably always will say mother instead of birthing parent. Um, I think I, I define woman as adult human female because that's what it's always been and God's created the male and females. I've not changed. I've not been deliberately provocative. All we've done is done what we've always done. But as we stay faithful to Jesus and his word, as we interpret the times, we can see that we're going to have to, again, an inevitable conflict of loyalty. The inevitable conflict of loyalty which side are you on? You got to make a choice. There's no staying on the fence. Now, verses 57 to 59. What's he saying here? Do what's right for yourself. And Jesus gives a little parable. He says, you know, say you've got yourself in a real jam. You're in a lot of debt. You've been accused. You've been rightly accused. It's in your best interest to settle that outside the court right now. Say, so we've seen this in the news with a certain quarterback. You better settle this right now. Or say, if it goes to the judge, it's going to be a lot worse for you. And so he's saying, effectively, is here we are. We know, right, Jesus came to cast fire on the earth, and he wishes that it was already kindled. We face the judgment of God. And you know what, Jesus says, I don't have a good case. God, I've been a pretty great guy this week, and I know you really needed me to do that. And I only said a few bad things to my wife and my kids, and I was, you know, a lousy colleague only one day out of five. Not bad, huh? Probably not. I'm in trouble. 
And he looks at the crowds, he says, settle your account now. Admit your bankruptcy before God. Come to him, his plan of redemption in Jesus. Will you repent and turn now? Do it now because there's gonna be a day coming and the just judgment will come. Friends, every week, and I'm, I'm glad of this, every week we, we look at our passage. Some Jesus is talking to his followers, the disciples, and other times, like in this last section, it's to the crowds. And I know every week we have those who are disciples and those who are in the crowds. And I ask you today, if you're one who's here and you say, I'm much more like the crowd, that I've not surrendered to Jesus, I've not admitted my need, I just say, think about this passage. You say, deep down in your heart, you say, you feel God moving and convicting you to say, you know what, I, I do need Jesus in my life because it's not going well and I don't have any peace and I need to get that relationship right. You see what he's saying? Settle your account now. Lord, I need you in my weakness. Thank you that you deal graciously with sinners. I come to you on your terms. I surrender to Jesus and I want to follow him. I pray that you say that today, you think that today, and it starts a great journey of maturation in faith in Jesus. All right, lastly, and I, and I hope helpfully, that this kind of passage is really, to me, something that does not allow um, cultural Christianity as an option. I, I really, there was a time in my life, and I do wrestle with this, where I, I could be maybe a, a casual Christian. You know, I, I have a lot of adversaries say, well, you know, Shaw, are you a Christian? Well, of course I am. You know, I'm born in Ohio. I'm of English stock. You know, I mean, what else would I be? I love Jesus. Great chap. You know, of course I'm one of those. Well, what about all this business about him coming to, to judge and, you know, him being the primary relationship in my life? Well, I don't know. That's a little bit weird. I don't, I don't need any of that stuff. You know, I just want to kind of be a good Christian guy. These kind of passages, and many others like them, to me, don't leave that as an option. Um, that Jesus would say, this is, this is, what ha this is God's plan. And, and you're kind of either, you're with him or you're against him. And as drawn as we are for a time of the, the kind of win-win philosophy, I think that's why we're drawn. Say, I like Jesus as Savior, and I like Jesus' teaching about turn the other cheek. Say, everybody loves that. Even the non-Christians love Jesus. Um, you know, but, but when we start to talk about him being the authoritative judge and the one who absorbed the wrath of God for my rebellion, um, that makes us a little less easy. And we see in a passage like this, it's kind of it's all one package that we don't want to siphon off Jesus as Savior from Jesus as Lord. You say, well, Jesus saves me, get out of hell free card, you know, that's good. But over here, this, uh, you know, um, s serving him and thinking that, you know, I don't like, say, no, Jesus is Savior and Lord. And we live in a time where this kind of win-win cultural Christianity is everywhere, and maybe as God prunes his church, it will become less. But just one poll that I looked at, the first one, you'll, you'll see this kind of thing a lot. 58% of professing Christians don't think the Holy Spirit is a real person. You say, clearly something's off there because Jesus talks so much about the Holy Spirit. You get the point. As you read this, as attracted as we are or might be to a kind of casual, cultural, nominal Christianity that the real Jesus of history, what he's come to do, doesn't leave that window open that he's Savior and Lord. So friends, as we close, I have to tell you, I, I have not been as convicted in a long time as preaching through Luke 12. And I said to somebody this week, I said, I, I really hope nobody particularly last week and this week, leaves here thinking, well, Pastor Shaw 
is always ready and always on mission, and uh, you know he's always interpreting the times correctly. And so, please don't. This is the long, faithful journey of being a Christian, where he's going to work on us. And I think the the aim, if you will is something like Paul's declaration in Philippians 3, where he, after all of his accomplishments, he'd look around in the world and he'd say this, I consider all things a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That ought to be our prayer, to say Jesus comes first. What's today about in this inevitable conflict of loyalties? Jesus comes first. When we put him first, he will honor that, right? that as we honor him, that all these things will be added to you. We put Jesus first, we lift him up in our lives, that as we do that, that he will then begin to use our lives for his glory and we'll be rightly aligned with him. So Jesus comes first, let's have our loves rightly ordered, knowing that the kind of claim that he places on our life will lead to a choice of loyalty. May we be those loyal to Jesus. Father, thank you for this word, a hard word today. I know some here, they're not even, they're, they're married, but have some disagreements on this, and they're thinking, what? Lord, I just pray that we, we take the main point here. The main point is that as you've put forth Jesus to redeem us, that he's king and Lord of all creation and judge, that he comes first in our lives. Help us to then order our marriages and our friendships with that end in mind. Not to say that we wouldn't be friends with non-Christians, that's a good thing, but rather to say as we keep you first, things are driving at that direction. And Lord, I do pray for those in this room who've said, you know, by my coming to a church like this, by my believing in the Bible the way that I do, I, I have lost family members. It's been really hard. I, I pray, Lord, that our church family, that the, the unity and the love in our church family uh, would would uh, fill that void and that any non-believing family members, Lord, that as we would pray and be committed to you, that you would do a work in their life. So help us this week to absorb this challenging teaching and to stay faithful to Jesus no matter what the cost. In his name we pray, amen.